This is the Saturate Podcast. Saturate is committed to seeing a gospel movement happen in North America and beyond, in which every man, woman, and child have a daily encounter with Jesus in word and deed. This podcast is an ongoing conversation with disciples and leaders growing in the gospel and growing in living the implications of the gospel in community and on mission. Welcome to the Saturate Podcast. My name is Brad Watson, and today we have a special episode. A few weeks ago in December 2017, we had Jeff Vanderstelt down in Los Angeles where he did a gospel fluency workshop. It was a a, a wonderful evening, just uh, bathed in the gospel, uh, a whole bunch of people from various churches across the city learning and being reminded of the power of the gospel, the purpose of the gospel, and just basic equipping and how do we speak the gospel in the stuff of everyday life? How do we speak the truths about Jesus? How do we point people to Jesus instead of really pointing people to other stuff? And the the evening was so great, we've decided to share the audio from that. And so uh, this episode and next week's episode are going to be different pieces of that training that Jeff did with us. Uh, we just want to make it available to everyone in the world. Uh, we hope you enjoy it. Just one little disclaimer, though, is it was recorded live. So there's a few moments where you can hear other noises. It might drop out a few moments throughout the podcast, but it's so good. We just really wanted to share it. And as you know, live things are live things. So you'll get that feel uh, not recorded in a studio. We hope you enjoy it. And this is Jeff's teaching on gospel fluency. It is our belief that God's intent and desire is that the church uh, stops seeing itself as an event on Sunday or a meeting once or twice a week, but rather as the people of God equipped for the ministry of God in all of life. That's really our conviction. And we look at Ephesians 4. Before I do that, I want to back up into chapter 1 and just read verses 21, 21 and 22 and 23. Uh, 21 tells us where Jesus is at, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. By the way, just stop and ask, what's under uh, Jesus? All things. He put all things under where? His feet and gave him as, what is he? Head over what? All things to who? The church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Which means, where are we? We're over all things with Christ as head. And when's the last time your church walked to work and said, I'm walking over all things with the authority and power and dominion of Jesus Christ. That I go to work with the head over all things as my spiritual head as I go to work. And our job is to bring the dominion and authority and reign and rule of Christ everywhere we go. That, that we would live in such a way that the world would find out what Jesus is like everywhere we go. That we, when we work in the industry, we realize our job is to show how Jesus would work in the industry and bring all things under the dominion of Christ, who is the head of the church for the glory of God the Father. That's, that's what we're doing. I was meeting with an executive at Microsoft who oversees several employees there, and I said, you know, the, the reality is, is that the holiness of God is not something you can see. The holiness of God is the other nature of God. It's the otherness of God. It's what sets him apart from all of creation. And yet the glory of God, which is the manifest reality of the truth of his holiness, is something that gets to be seen. Uh, And the glory of God was seen in the person of Jesus Christ. He said, if you see me, you've seen the Father. The Apostle Paul says that he, in the fullness of the deity, dwelt in bodily form in Jesus Christ. And now we are his body, of which he is our, our head. And, G, and Paul says in Colossians 1.27, Christ in you is the hope of glory. In other words, the means by which the world is going to see what God is like is through you, his church, living as the holy other people of God in the world in such a way that they go, you are altogether different, but you show what God is like. And if he went to work in your body, this is what he would do. And so as I sat down with this Microsoft employee, I said, I want you to begin to imagine that your job is to be a boss at Microsoft in such a way that all your employees would come to understand what it would be like if they were under the the authority of Christ all day long as you are their boss. That you would 
You would work over them like Christ works over us, which means you would serve them like Christ serves us, that you would be generous in your praise and your encouragement and the way you build them up, that you would exist to help them be the fullness of what God always intended humanity to be so they could join in in glorifying God in their workplace, that you would live in such a way that they would look at you and go, if Jesus were to be my boss tomorrow, he would look a lot like you. That's kind of, I said, how would that change how you go to work? It's like, man, that would change everything. He said, three out of 10 employees at Microsoft want to go to work. The other seven don't want to work. They work because they have to work. He said, we're trying to change that desire that work would be seen as a good thing. And he said, I think if I worked like that, I might actually help my employees start to see work as a good thing because I would exist for their flourishing. I would exist for the flourishing of our company and the flourishing of our world. And, and all people around me would experience a taste of Jesus every day they go to work. So that, that's the vision that we have, that we would live that way. And Paul says, then Ephesians 4, you guys can probably hardly see your Bibles, right? Except for you got apps, so you're fine. Um, he says, verse 4, verse 11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to what? To equip the saints for what? The work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And you guys, this hopefully isn't new to you. God has not given pastors to the church to do ministry for the church. They, they are not the ministers of the gospel. They are the equippers of the ministers of the gospel. And who are the ministers of the gospel? Every single member of the body of Christ. They're all called to be ministers. God gives a few to the church to equip the many, not a few to the church to do the ministry for the many. That's what he wants. He wants everyone in the church to be equipped for the work of ministry. And he goes on, he says, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. That could also be personhood or to mature humanity, which is what all God always intended for us to be, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's the definition of maturity is Christ-likeness, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceit. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in how many ways? Every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which, is it, which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What Paul is saying there is as each part is being equipped and each part is learning to speak the truth in love to each part, then each part starts to grow up into Christ's likeness. And as they grow up into Christ's likeness, they become a much more equipped body part. And as they become a much more equipped body part, they equip each other. So every single member of the body of Christ is equipping every single member of the body of Christ. That's when the church is working the way it's supposed to. It's not sitting back going, man, I hope somebody does something around here. I hope someone speaks the word right or preaches well. They don't come up to the pastor and just go, that was a really great message. They go, you know why that was a great message? Because I can walk out and now share that message with somebody else. You just equipped me for the work of ministry. Thank you for using your gift, my good, to build me up so I could go build others up with what you gave me. That's the intent, that it always leads to equipping so that others can equip each other. But the key phrase I want to look at tonight as we walk through this concept of gospel fluency is speaking the truth in love. Paul says the means by which we're going to most effectively build each other up in every way is by speaking the truth in love. Now, I don't know how you hear that phrase, but when I used to hear that phrase, I used to think that means one of my brothers or sisters has done something wrong or they're living in a way that's kind of broken or, you know, they, they just kind of get on people's nerves every once in a while that, you know, you got to go speak the truth and love to them. You know, like, you know, what you're kind of a jerk, you know, but I love you. So I'm just going to speak the truth and love. Or, you know, I watched you treat your wife pretty miserably the other night. And but I love you. So I'm going to speak the truth in love. That's not what Paul is referring to here. I'm not saying there won't be times when we have to say, I love you. And I'm going to talk to you truthfully about some things in your life. But that's not what he means here. In fact, What's a good thing to do whenever you read the Bible and you say, what does somebody mean in this text? You keep reading. All right? You read the rest of the text. Where we get in trouble is when we read a passage outside of the text, we read it not in the context. And so we want to read this in the context. If you keep reading, he goes on after he talks about the pagans. And for Paul, that's people who don't, they're ignorant to the truth. They've not yet experienced God open their eyes and change their hearts. And he says, but that's not the way that you learn Christ. 
assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as what? Say it with me. The truth is in Jesus. When Paul says, speaking the truth in love so that we might in every way grow up into him who is our head, into Christ, he means speaking Jesus in love into everything. That's what he means. If you're going to grow up into Christ in every way, we've got to learn how to speak the truth of Christ into everything. That, that's, that's what Paul is saying. Fundamentally, Paul is saying, if you want to help people grow up into Christ in their parenthood, in how they parent, you got to actually speak the truths of the gospel into how they parent. When, if you're going to help them grow up into Christ and how they handle their finances, you got to learn how to speak the truth of the gospel, the truths of Jesus, into their finances. If you want to help them grow in how they're going to handle their sexuality, you don't just say, the Bible says it and that's good enough for me, because that's fundamentally a non-Christian answer. The Bible says it, and that's good enough for me. It has nothing to do with Jesus. And that makes you fundamentally non-Christian when you never, ever talk about Jesus. To, to be a Christian is to say, the Bible talks about Jesus, and therefore when I talk about what the Bible says, I talk about how the Bible talks about Jesus, in particular in regards to what we're talking about. Does that make sense? Here's what happens. If we're going to build each other up into Christ in every way, Paul is saying we need to learn how to speak Christ into everything. So if we're going to grow up into Christ in every way, we've got to learn how to speak the truths of Christ into everything. But here's what often happens. We go, okay, I'm going to talk to you about your finances. And man, you got to get a budget and you got to like learn how to just give because the Bible tells you you should give. And I'm going to introduce you to Dave Ramsey who can give you some good budgeting planning. And, and I'm not anti-Dave Ramsey. That's what I'm saying. But when's the last time someone sat down with you and said, let's talk about our money in regards to Jesus and how Jesus informs how we look at our money. So when we talk about our money, we go, we don't just say, hey, you know what, you should save and you should give and you should make sure you have a retirement plan and you should budget these things first. You go, wait a minute, let's just remember what the gospel tells us about Jesus because here's what happens. If you talk about money and never get to Jesus, you lead them away from Jesus when it comes to their money. You give them something other than Jesus when it comes to their money, you fundamentally lead them to see that their money has nothing to do with the gospel, that the gospel has nothing to do with their money, that the, what Jesus has done doesn't speak to that aspect of their life. And so they go, money is one of those things that's kind of like a, a non-spiritual thing. And you know that because when you sit down and talk to them about their finances, they freak out, right? Because they're like, you don't get to talk to me about that. We can talk about what the Bible teaches, but you can't talk to me about my finances. Anybody ever had one of those experiences, right? And it's because we've actually created categories that are fundamentally non-spiritual or that we don't think the gospel speaks to. But help me out here. Well, how does the gospel speak to money? How about 2 Corinthians 8? He who is rich became poor, so that in his poverty we might become rich. Paul uses that passage to teach the Jerusalem church how to give generously, or the I'm sorry, the Corinthian church to give generously to the Jerusalem need. He says, let the way Christ gave of himself be the means by which you remember how to give to others. He talks about Christ being the first fruit gift that God gave, that he gave us his very best, his own son, the first fruit of the future harvest of a new creation so that he might bring all the rest of us in with him as well. And so what does God do? He gives of his very best, trusting that the rest are coming in through the giving of his very best. So how does that inform how we give? We start teaching first fruit giving, not because well, it's just an Old Testament thing, but because it's a gospel thing. The Old Testament was always pointing forward to Jesus, and now Paul and others are pointing us back to the Old Testament and how it points us forward to Jesus and how ultimately we live in light of that in our finances. Right? Think about sexuality. How many times have you had a conversation about sex lately? Maybe too often with so much that's going on around us. Uh, and it just, I don't know how it was for you, but growing up for me, it was like, hey, man, wait till you're, till you're married to have sex. And, you know, because that's right and that's good. And, and I was always told it, it'll just mean better sex if you wait. That's actually a lie. Like, that's not true, just to be clear. Like, you don't have better sex by not having sex. You get better at having sex by having sex. So, like, that doesn't really work. And the motivation is also selfish because if you go, hey, Jeff, you know what? You should save your... Your sexuality, you should abstain until you get married so that it'll be better. So you'll have it. It'll be more better for you. You'll enjoy it a lot more if you wait. What was I being told my whole life? It's all about you. Your sex life is about you and your satisfaction and your enjoyment. 
you know how many problems I deal with in marriages where fundamentally the husband thinks it was all about him all his life? And it's like, man, you aren't pleasing me. You aren't making me happy. It's like, who told you it was about you? It was never about you. And, and so what, what if we gave them the gospel for sexuality instead of just a kind of a worldly point of view that says it's all about you. If you wait, it'll get better. If you don't wait, you're going to get a disease anyway, and that's bad. And you might have an unwanted pregnancy. And I mean, think of all the motivation you gave people for waiting. It's like none of it had to do with Jesus. What if you said, hey, man, the biblical narrative is about a love story, about, about one who pursued a woman, even though she was unfaithful to him, even though she sold herself over and over and over again in impurity, even though she, she was not willing to wait for him, but he was willing to wait for her. And then he pursued her for 30 years, getting to know her life in such a way. I mean, he didn't just stay far away. He became one of them. He joined them in flesh. And he came into the neighborhood and he said, I'm going to pursue you for 30 years. I'm going to know you. I'm going to understand what it's like to live in your skin. Husbands, we could learn a lot from Jesus, couldn't we? Like when Paul says, husbands live, or Peter says, husbands live with your wives in an understanding way. Be really good to go. Like, what does that look like, Jesus? Looks like 30 years. I mean, I've been married almost 25. Still don't quite get it. So I'm working on it. But trying to understand my wife. And Jesus, we're told, the writer of Hebrews says, he understands us perfectly because he suffered in every way just like us, but was without sin. Tempted in every way, but never gave in. I mean, it's beautiful news of what Jesus has done to pursue his bride. And for three years, he courts her and he pursues her and he serves her and he speaks good news over her. And he chases after her to the point of death at a cross where he not only purchases his wed her wedding dress with his own blood, but he also purifies her of all her impurities, forgiving herself away to other suitors all those years. It's a beautiful love story. And it makes sure all the young men who pursue my two daughters know that Jesus had to buy a dress for his bride. It's going to be clear about that. Okay? See if we can help myself out a little bit. I'm a pastor. I have a lot of money. I find a way to make this gospel stuff work for me. Uh, just kidding. Um, maybe not. But so, so he, what, then he rises from the dead on the third day, and he says, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you, and then I'm going to come back and I'm going to bring you to that place. And, you know, every single aspect of a wedding ceremony is just telling the gospel story, but most people have, have lost the story. Then I realize when the woman's walking down the aisle in a beautiful wedding dress, it's meant to be a processional picture of the church being prepared and brought to Jesus on that wedding feast. And that when she's given away, it was a reminder of Adam receiving Eve and rejoicing that she was flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone, and now this is a purified bride, and the Father's giving the bride to the Son, Jesus Christ. And, and the purchasing of the, of the wedding dress, the Son is sitting there going like, I paid for that, and I love her. And she's beautiful, and she's holy, and she's righteous, and she's glorious. And at this moment, it's all about us for who? The glory of the Father. Even the wedding ceremony is not primarily just about him. It's about the glory of the Father. Why is Jesus raised up, Paul says in Philippians 2? So that God might be glorified. That's the point of our sexuality is we're telling the narrative of the story of the Son of God pursuing his bride from all eternity past till today and into the future where we're going to have a beautiful wedding feast that we're all going to be a part of. And we're that bride. And every time we talk about sexuality, we should say, we're telling his story. The reason why you wait until you're married is because you are telling the story of our Savior and what he did for us, that he is waiting for us. He pursued us. He still hasn't consummated this marriage. It's been a long time. It's been a really long time, and he's faithful and patient and enduring in his love. And not only do we tell them that story, but we say, you know, all the times in which you've failed, in which you have been that unfaithful bride, men and women in the room, all the times you've, you've looked at pornography or given yourself to lustful thoughts or physically given yourself to a person who's not your spouse, every single time that happens, we have to look back to the cross and say, there's one who made us pure, even though we are impure. Even though we have walked away, he never, ever walked away. And we celebrate his grace and his forgiveness. And we walk down that aisle, in a sense, in the pure, righteous robe of his righteousness that he clothes us with. And in a sense, we're all that bride coming down the aisle going, yes, we are beautiful before God, regardless of what we've done. And so now I want to live like that's true. I don't want to just do it because I'm trying to become pure. I'm going to do it because he made me pure, even though I've lived an impure, unholy life. Amen? What if we gave people that as the motivation for their purity and their sexuality? And, and then parenting, you know, it's like, how do we do parenting? Any parents in the room? How many times, parents, have you actually used the consequence of sin to motivate your kids to stop sinning? 
right? Instead of leading them to Christ, you led them away from Christ, right? Remember coming downstairs, my kids are screaming top of their lungs. It's ah, my son and daughter. My oldest is now uh, almost uh, 16, crazy. She's driving. Ah, she's got her permit. It's nuts. Drive me nuts. Anyway, uh, she's doing that. And uh, she's going to be off to college in a couple years. But this is when she was probably about 10. And Caleb is 8. And Maggie's about 5 at this time. Those are my three kids. They're now 15, 13, 11. So they've grown up since then. But I come down, and they're screaming. They're playing Candyland, okay? And it's, you know, those little character figures that are cardboard. They have little plastic bottoms that stand on. And, and my son is holding one without a head. And my daughter is yelling at it, my oldest daughter, Caleb ripped the head off. I'm like, yeah, we can see that. And he's like, she cheated. And they're going back and forth. And I go, stop it. What happened? And then he, she explains it again. I said, Caleb, did you rip the head off? No, I didn't. She cheated. I'm kind of going like, you can't hide this one. You know, it's like Adam and Eve in the garden. And, you know, their gut's going like, what happened? Like, he, does, he knows what happened. He's just trying to draw them out, right, and ask them to actually speak out loud what they've been believing that led to what they're doing. And in that moment, I, as my son realizes I'm not an idiot and I can see a, a headless player in his hand, he puts his head inside of his shirt, and then he takes his knees and puts it into his shirt, and he becomes a shirt ball. And it's like this little turtle, you know, like hiding out from the reality of his shame. And how often, parents, when their kids experience the shame of sin, do we go, you should be ashamed of yourself? Instead of going like, they already are ashamed of themselves. That's why they're hiding. How often do we try to pour on more shame as the motivator so they won't feel shame in the future instead of realizing that if we keep pouring more shame to help them deal with their shame, all we're going to do is teach them how to be better deceivers in their life. They're just going to learn how to be better hiders. They're just going to learn how to be more sophisticated in their ability to, to lie and cover up and pretend like nothing's really wrong. And, and, and I'm, I'm not trying to be self-righteous here. I struggle with this as a parent because sometimes it's a lot quicker just to go shame on you. And then next time to say, if you do that again, just imagine what everybody's going to think of you. And we start using shame their whole life. And what do they become? They become performers and master deceivers. And they never, ever want to be truly known because they wonder if you found out what I'm really like, what would you think of me? And then they spend their entire life running from God. Because they wonder, what would God think if he really knew what I'm really like? And in those moments, we don't lead them away from Christ. Our job is to train our children the way they should go. And when they're old, they won't depart from it. And what is the way? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our job is to lead them to him. And so in that moment, by God's grace, it didn't always happen this way. Thankfully, this moment it did. Uh, I said, son, I want to remind you, you don't have to hide. You don't have to live with shame. You get to run to the one who took away your shame. I want to remind you that Jesus died on the cross for what you just did and that he suffered and died so that you could come out of hiding. You don't have to hide from God. You don't have to hide from me. You don't ever have to pretend like you don't need Jesus. I want to call you to run to Jesus right now, son. And I remember he just slowly peeked out of the shirt and looked out. You know, I had this one little eyeball at first and then two. <laughs> and pretty soon his whole head popped out and he just lunged at me. He's like, Daddy, I'm so sorry. And yet what was, most, what was most difficult for Caleb was not that he was holding a man without a head or that his sister cheated in a game. It's what does dad think of me now, now that he knows what I've done. And you know what? One of the biggest challenges for people these days is like, if God really knew what I was like, what would he think of me? What would you think of me if you really knew what I was really like? If you really got to know the real me, would you still love me? And see, the gospel allows us to say, absolutely. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Son, you don't have to hide. And as soon as he grabbed a hold of me, we started praying and thanking Jesus for his grace and the fact that he takes away the shame through his death on the cross. My daughter said, see, I told you. And I said, you're going to be next. Just hold on. And so we finished praying together and then, and then I came to my daughter and I said, sweetheart, I want to encourage you. Not only does Jesus take away the shame, but he's also the one who took the blame. He took the blame for what Caleb did. He took the blame for you cheating. You don't have to be perfect and all together for God to love you. Only Jesus can be for you. And my older daughter, she's a firstborn. Firstborns tend to want to be right. And when they're not, they tend to figure out how they can be self-right, just which usually means that they compare themselves to somebody lesser than them. 
so they can feel better than them because they become the new standard of righteousness because it's hard to admit that they're not righteous. And so my daughter doesn't struggle with hiding. She struggles with blaming because that's what we do when we realize we're guilty. We've got to find someone else who's more guilty than us to make us feel better than what we feel in the moment. See, the reality is, as the scriptures teach, that we are all built deeply and kind of wired to find atonement for sin. God put it in every single human that someone must pay for sin. That when someone does wrong, we all intuitively know someone's got to pay. Justice must be made and, and things must be corrected. And so my daughter's feeling that need for atonement in that moment. And the problem is, if we don't find atonement in Jesus Christ, we'll either spend our entire life paying for what we've done, which usually means self-hatred, cutting, eating disorders, deep depression, whatever else leads you to look into yourself to save yourself, it'll always end in more destruction of self. Or we look outward and we find people we can hate or blame or continue to be bitter over because of the things that they've done to us all our life. And the, the hopelessness of that life is unbelievably destructive. And some of you in the room know it. And, and I told my daughter in that moment, I said, sweetie, I want to remind you every single time you feel guilty or every time that you see guilt in your brother or your father or anyone else, don't point your finger at anybody else but the cross. Like blame Jesus. Not because he did it, but because he took the blame. If you're going to point your finger anywhere, go, Jesus is the one who suffered and died for what Caleb just did. Jesus is the one who suffered and died for what I just did. And if I can't look to the cross, I'll have to keep looking to myself to pay for my sin. It'll always crush me. Or I'm going to look to my brother and I'm going to find myself hating him as a result, because that's what atonement leads you to do. It leads you to want someone to die. Thankfully, someone already did. I said, sweetie, Jesus died for you and he died for your brother to receive what he did for you so you don't have to live with guilt and you don't have to pour it on him. And then she said, Daddy, why do I keep doing this? And she lunged at me and started crying. And we started, I said, sweetie, you keep doing it because you keep forgetting. All of us forget what Jesus has done. We all forget the sufficiency of the cross. We all forget the good news of the gospel on a daily basis. And our job is to keep reminding each other of these truths. And so we took time to pray together. And it's been an ongoing journey for me as a parent to learn how not to just pour more consequence of sin on them to get them to stop sinning, but point them to Jesus as the one who can not only forgive and remove the shame, but can give them new power and ability to live a new life. Amen? So parents, that's, we can't lead them away from Jesus. And, and, and we could keep going. We could do this for work. We could do this for lots of things. And my question is, is this pretty natural for you to do this on a daily basis? Do you find yourself regularly in situations going, Man, I, I, there's just such good news for what we're facing right now. This, my sister came home from work, and she's, she's frustrated, and she's angry at her boss. He doesn't recognize her or pay her well, and she deserves better than that. And then the spirit says, no, 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 stop. What does she deserve? She deserves death. The wage of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, your Lord. The gospel reminds us, we don't, none of us deserve a paycheck. None of us deserve a job. None of us deserve to be, get up tomorrow morning. It's God's mercies that are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness, not ours. So we wake up and we go, I can't even believe I'm alive. And I, I, I get paid better than I deserve every day of my life. And not only that, I'm going to get paid eternal life, which is far better than I deserve. And I want to get recognized in my company, but I'm already seated with Christ in the heavenly realm. So Find a higher position. I don't have one. That's it. Like, you know, I don't need my boss to lift me up. Jesus lift me up. And I don't, I don't need a great retirement package. I've got eternity. I'm a co-heir with Christ. And I don't need someone to keep telling me how good my job, how I'm doing at my job because Jesus is praying for me continually, making intercession before God the Father saying, Jeff is amazing because of what I've done. Love him like he loved me. Don't you love John 17 at the end? Jesus says, Father, I pray that you would love them with the same love you loved me. Think about that. He's praying that for you constantly. You ever wonder if anybody's praying for you? The answer is yes. Jesus is praying for you every single second of every day. Those kinds of words. Father, love them like you love me. See them like you see me. I want to remind you all the blessings that I have. They're theirs. Jesus is doing the intercessory work that Moses did on behalf of Israel, but he's doing it perfectly before God the Father for you every single moment of every day. Like, you go to work, you don't have to go like, man, I need my boss to build me up. No, you don't. 
You need your boss to know you don't need to be built up by anybody else because you've got the king of kings building you up constantly. And so then you can be the best employees that this city's ever known because you don't need a paycheck, a position, or praise all day long. You're free. And then when you get it, you go, those are just bonuses on top of something far better. It's like it's like little bit of icing on an incredible cake. Amen? And that's what we've got to learn how to do. How do we learn how to speak the truths of Jesus into the everyday stuff of life? And that's why we use the language gospel fluency. And Brad started off with that because how many of you guys ever learned a, another language? Do you ever remember when you became fluent and you fi find yourself dreaming in that language? Did you? You know, are you... You find yourself like just talking without even thinking about it in that language. It just flows. You don't. You no longer do that. Okay, I'm thinking like for me, Jeff. If I'm learning Spanish, I'm hearing Spanish, but I'm thinking Spanish into English in my head. Then in my head, I'm going, okay, now how do I say what I want to say in English in Spanish? So I do that in my head, and then I speak it out loud in Spanish. You're not doing that. You're just going Spanish, Spanish, Spanish. That's fluency, and you start just translating the world through Spanish. You know. You think in Spanish and dream in Spanish and feel in Spanish and love in Spanish and sing in Spanish and it's all Spanish. That's what should happen with us with the gospel. It's our mother tongue. It's the word of, of Christ that saved you, gave you birth into the world that you're going to live in forever. And you should be learning, go, I want gospel. I want to see the world through the gospel, through the truths of Christ. I want to think in light of Christ. I want to think Christ. I want to speak Christ. I want to feel Christ. I want to love with Christ. I want to sing with Christ. I want all my life to be saturated with the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ constantly, every day, every moment. And how do you do that? First of all, you got to know and believe it. <laughs> Hopefully that's true. Hopefully even as I was doing a little bit of illustration, you're going, yeah, yeah. And tonight as I walk through some of the gospel, some of you, just going to warn you, if you go, man, I know all that. I don't need to hear it again. That should scare you. You ought to go, Wait a minute, if I just sit back on, I've heard all this before, could he give me something new? Then you should ask yourself, has it ever really hit your heart? Because I'll tell you what, if you start talking about my wife right now, I won't go, yeah, yeah, I've married, been married for 25 years. Give me something new. You go, you know, her name is Janie, and one of her favorite things is the color red, and she enjoys flowers, Jeff, and you're bad at that because you're Dutch, and you don't like to buy flowers because they, they rot, but you probably should get over that and love your wife. You know, and you start talking to me about the, the kinds of books she likes and the movies she likes. Or, and all of a sudden, I, I don't go like, yeah, I know, come on, don't. You don't have to tell me that. She's my wife. I go, yeah, she's my wife. Keep talking. I love her. And when we talk about Jesus, we should be going, yeah, keep going. You guys remember, remember uh, Lion King? Mufasa. Ooh. Say it again. Right? You remember that part? One of my favorite parts, like Mufasa. Ooh. Say it again. And that's how she'd be with Jesus, like Jesus. Oh, say it again. Say it again. Say it again. I never grow tired of hearing my Savior's name. I never grow tired hearing of his love. I never grow tired hearing about what he did for me, undeserving as I am. Yet he made me before God the Father worthy of love and affection. So we have to ask, do we know it? Do we believe it? And, and as I, I put that up there, I just want to stop and say, you know, you don't have a hard time talking about what you love, do you? I mean, I. I could talk to you a long time about my three kids. could tell you all night about my wife. could talk to you about my church, that sometimes I have a hard time loving, if I'm honest, and yet most of the time I really love a lot. And when I have a hard time loving, it's because Jeff's got a problem. And God's growing in me my affection for my church as I lead and shepherd and pastor them. But I still could tell you a lot about them, and I love them. And that's why it hurts when it doesn't go well, because I love them so much. Right? I don't have a hard time talking about what I love. None of you do. So you probably don't need a class on how to talk about Jesus. You need to ask yourself, do you love him? Because if you do, you'll talk about it. I kind of love the Seahawks. Sorry that you guys don't have much to talk about these days, but I'm, I'm kidding. You actually do. <laughs> We're a little scared about that nowadays. But you didn't used to. Now you do. Um, you do. Now you do. All right. Um, we also talk about what works, don't you? you? You don't have a problem bragging on the things that work in your life. You guys have phones? Samsung, you like it? Did you tell anybody about it? All right, anybody you do CrossFit? Don't tell me, I want to hear about it. Paleo, keto, right? I could keep going, right? You've told somebody about it. You're like, man, it's amazing. I have so much energy. I never had this much energy in my life. You're like, some of you are evangelists for diets more effectively than you are for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I didn't say that to shame you. I'm just saying, like, it's just an example. 
Okay, just an example. You talk about what you love and you talk about what works. So I want to ask, do you love the gospel? Do you believe it works? And so first of all, we've got to ask, what is the gospel? I want to start with Romans 1. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I don't want to miss that. What is the gospel? It's the power of God for salvation. Please, if you walk away with anything tonight, walk away with this. The burden is not on you. You are not required to save yourself. You are not required to make yourself into anything for God. God does that. God saves, not you. God sanctifies, not you. God glorifies, not you. He does the work. It's his power for salvation to everyone who believes. And that's the second part, belief. He doesn't say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for everybody who works. Works hard at church, goes to church, gives their tithes, serves, knows their spiritual gifts, knows how to use them in a, in a small group, can teach really well. None of that. In fact, Jesus, when asked, what must we do to be doing the works of God? He answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So anytime someone goes, man, I'm just all about the work of God, and I just want to work for the Lord, guess what that means? Believe. I just want to work for the Lord. Good, believe, brother. Believe what? Believe in the one he sent. Believe in Jesus and his life. Believe in his death. Believe in his resurrection. Believe in his present uh, intercession. Believe in his future coming to make all things new. Believe in Jesus for everything. His life is your life. His death is your death. His resurrection is your resurrection. Paul says in Romans that if we've been united with him in a death like this, we've also been united with him in a resurrection like his. In other words, when you're buried with Christ, your sin went to the grave, never to be raised up again against you. Anytime you hear an accusing word against something you did, like, man, I know what you did, and God doesn't love you, and you blew it this time, and it's too much, just know that's not from the Spirit of God. That's from the accuser, because the Spirit of God doesn't get to bring up the past or the future or the present in terms of your sin, because your sin was buried with Christ, and you were buried with Christ when he was buried, and your sin is removed as far as the east is from the west. And so when God sees you, he doesn't see your sin. He sees your sin in a grave, dead. I love Romans 8. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on, he says, for Christ in his flesh condemned sin. Isn't that amazing? Jesus condemned sin in his flesh by putting it to death for you. There's no longer condemned word, condemning word to be spoken over you. Doesn't that encourage you? And then, then he, he talks about not only buried with Christ, but we're raised with Christ. That, that just as Christ has been given new life, we've been given new life. And then we've been seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. And that everything that is true of Christ and his life and his death and his resurrection and his present ascension is now true for you in Christ. That is incredible news. So what do you do? You believe it. What do we believe? Well, we believe, first of all, that we have been saved from the penalty of sin. Paul goes on in Romans 1, 17 to say, not only am I not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, but he says, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, for the righteousness, for the righteous to live by faith. And I love that, that he says, it's from faith, it's for faith, the righteous live by faith. In other words, the entirety of your Christian life is faith. The entirety, past, present, and future. And I don't know how it was for you, but I wasn't taught that growing up. I was taught that it begins with faith, the middle is works, and then you try to do your best to make it to the end and hope you make it. I'm telling you, that's not a hope-filled life. In fact, most days I had to pray to be saved every day. Like over and over again, man, I, I don't know. I just don't know if I'm saved, and I gotta, I'm going to get on my knees one more time, and I'm going to walk down the aisle one more time, and maybe this time it'll work. Whose confidence was I putting in? I wasn't putting my confidence in belief. I was putting my confidence in my works. And in that case, my work of praying a prayer, my work of walking down an aisle, my work of proving my faith, instead of going, no, I've been saved from the penalty of sin by faith in Jesus and his death for me. For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
This is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. No one gets to take credit for anything in terms of salvation. Every bit of it is Jesus Christ. Every bit of it. You, know, you think on that day, you're going to go, man, I'm going to have these, I've heard people, you know, you talk about, I'm going to have jewels in my crown, I'm going to have all these things that I earned throughout my life. And it's like, at the end, where do they all go? They go at the feet of Jesus. Because you realize they were all his. He did it all. And at the end, you're going to go, I can't take credit for anything. Because it was all Jesus. The only hope I have was Christ in me. That's it. It's by grace that you've been saved. And I want to stop and just make sure we hit on this, this idea that you have been saved. You know, Paul says in Romans 3, the wages are uh, uh, all have sinned, verses, uh, verses 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I want to just make sure I define sin for you guys, because oftentimes I hear sin primarily is just missing the mark. But what is the mark? The glory of God is the mark. What is the glory of God? The glory of God is, is you and I as image bearers living in such a way that we tell the truth about what God is like in our thoughts, our motives our actions, and our words. And sin is any failure to be like God in our thoughts, our motives, our actions, and our words. I'm going to say that again. Sin is any way in which you and I fail to be like God in our thoughts, motives, actions, or words. So you can all agree with Paul real quickly. Yes, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Amen? And then the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, I was sharing that passage with someone in our missional community, and she said uh, she is not a Christian yet at this point. She hadn't come to faith in what Jesus had done for her. And she said, so I don't know that I disagree with you. Like, I know that I've sinned. I know that I'm not, I haven't lived a life that would tell the truth about what God is like in my thoughts, my motives, my actions, and my words. And that you said it's the wages of sin is death. So why am I not dead? And I was like, man, I wish more Christians like took God's word that seriously. <laughs> like, she's like, why am I not dead? She expected to be dead. And so there was a part of it's like, okay, now that I know that, is he going to kill me? And um, I said, well, hold on. The reality is that the wage of sin is death. Doesn't just mean physical death. I said, it starts with a spiritual death in terms of our separation relationally from the giver of life in terms of us knowing him and walking with God in a daily way hearing from him, knowing a relationship that's full of love and affection. So you've experienced that spiritual death and you're going without it every day, but you're hungry for it. God made you to want that every moment of your life because he made you for himself, made you for a relationship with him. I said, not only is it a spiritual death, but it's, all, it's also an emotional death. Your, your emotions have been really destroyed by sin in so many ways. And I said, not only that, but it's a psychological death. The way you perceive yourself and the way you perceive the world through yourself is all broken. And that's led to a relational death, though your relationships are experiencing death on a daily basis and the way that they're broken and they, they don't really satisfy like God intended to have us find love from one another in perfect, unified ways. And I said, not only that, but there's a societal death. You see it all around you in the city of Seattle, don't you? And that's where I'm from. And it's like, yeah, it's everywhere. It's horrible. And I said, and it's not just that, but it, it goes on to all kinds of other things like a political death and how we rule and oversee things. And, and it, it shapes the, the creational order. And so we have a creational death that the world itself, the very physical matter is suffering under the bondage of sin because we're destroying it on a daily basis. And of course, she's from Seattle, so that's an easy one. She's like, you got it. We're destroying the planet. It's terrible. You know, and so she's seeing this. And I said, I said, but all of that is pointing forward to the fact that you're going to die one day. And you can't stop it. And I said, but that's not the end. The worst is an eternal death, a separation from God that is forever. And God is giving you a taste of all that death, that ultimate spiritual reality of being separated from the life giver forever. He's giving you a taste of that and all these other little deaths. In, in your emotional death, in your relational death, your societal death, political death, the creational death, and ultimately your physical death. And God is saying to you your entire life, the wages of sin is death, and I'm trying to wake you up before you die so that you don't face an eternal death separated from me forever. Pay attention. 
And I just, I just urged her, I said, understand God has been so patient with you to give you small taste of death. So ultimately you'll turn to the giver of life who can set you free because of your sin. You rebelled against the giver of life and he knows the only one who can save you is the one who gave his life in death for you, Jesus Christ. And I, I, I share with her how Jesus lived a life perfectly glorifying God in every way. Every thought, every motive, every action, every behavior, every word was always conformed to the image of God, perfectly submitted to God as a human on our behalf. So the gospel isn't just Jesus' death. The gospel includes his life. If you just look at the cross, but you don't look at the life, then you miss the whole purpose of why Jesus had to live. If all he needed to do was die, he just would have showed up and went, here I am, I'm dead. He needed to live our life in our place. So every time you and I fall short, we can go, but he didn't. He didn't. That's why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I don't know how you hear that, but I used to, I used to think, I used to think like, okay, Jesus had like 100% balance of righteousness and I had like 100% negative balance of sin. And when Jesus died on the cross, he who knew no sin became sin. And I became zero balance. I'm just forgiven, forgiven of sin. And now I've got to somehow measure up to the righteousness of Christ with my life. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says, he who knew no sin, 100% righteous, became sin, my sin, so that in him I might become the righteousness of God. Man, just stop and think about that. Jesus exchanged in your place, his righteousness for our sin, so that you and I might be considered righteousness, righteous even though we're not. Is, is that good news to you tonight? You know, I just go back and go, man, that makes me feel great about the week. I had a guy who came to me one time after a Sunday gathering and said, Jeff, would you pray with me? I said, sure. And I said, why? And he said, well, I've been having, I had a really bad week. And I said, well, tell me about it. He goes, well, I, you know, I've been trying to get over Chew. I was chewing again this week, chewing tobacco. And I said, okay, so why was that a bad week? And he said, well, because I was chewing tobacco, and I don't want, that's not good. And I go, I know, but why is that a bad week? So he kind of looked at me, he's kind of like, are you doing okay today? Pastor, are you all right? And I'm like, no, I'm good. I'm just trying to figure out why it's a bad week to you. He goes, well, because I, I, I chewed. I don't want to do that. I said, okay. So what's a good week? He said, when I don't. I go, so why is that a good week? He goes, because I don't. I'm like, okay, just help me understand this. So when you chew, it's a bad week because you chew. And when you don't chew, it's a good week because you didn't chew. He goes, yeah. I go, so, so far all I'm hearing is it's all about you. And he goes, yeah. And I go, can I frame up your weeks a little differently? What if the week that you chewed was God saying, I'm just making you so aware that you need a Savior? I said, do you believe you need Jesus this week? He goes, oh, man, I believe I need Jesus. So it sounds like a good week. He said, what do you mean? I go, if God is truthful in saying you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and you proved him right this week, and now you really know you need a Savior, that sounds like a good week. I said, can you find yourself boasting in your need for Jesus right now? He goes, absolutely, I need him really bad. I'm like, that's a good week then. I go, how about the week when you don't chew? What if instead of saying, I didn't chew, you go, you know what? If I do anything that glorifies God, it wasn't me, but it was Christ in me. And therefore, the week where I realize I need Christ is a good week. And the, re- the week when Christ and I were walking in a kind of union that I was submitted to and walking in fullness of, of awareness of his presence and his power, and I was able to say no to sin, that's a good week because Jesus did it. Not because you did. He did it in you. He did it through you. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who's at work in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Man, I've been saved. No more guilt, no more shame. Every week is a good week with Jesus because every week I have a Savior who sufficiently paid for my sin and nothing I do ever cancels out the reality of his sufficiency. I had one guy come to me over and over again going, Jeff, I just can't believe this. So what do you mean? What can't you believe? By the way, side note, some of you actually preach the gospel in such a way that it doesn't sound like good news. You're like, yeah, man, they rejected it. I gave, I gave, them, the bad, I gave them the good news. You're like, did it sound like good news to them? No, it didn't. 
But pastor, you told me that it's going to, you know, to some it sounds like foolishness. To those who are perishing, it sounds like foolishness. Yeah, it sounds like foolishness, not bad news. There's a difference. Foolishness is, that's too good to be true. God can't love like that. He can't forgive like that. There's no way Jesus would die for me. Do you know what I'm like? Do you, do you think that he knows me and loves me and accepts me? That's foolishness. It's not bad news, though. Let's be really clear. It should sound like it's too good to be true, that the world would go, if only that were true, if only someone loved me like that, if only someone was that patient with me and enduring with me and faithful to me. I mean, is that possible? I can't even believe it. Nobody's like that. Jesus is. It should sound like good news. So this guy, as I was continuing to share the gospel, he goes, I'm just telling you, Pastor, I've done way too much. And I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, the stuff I've done, I don't think God can forgive. And I said, well, tell me about it. So he told me about it. And it was really bad. At one point, I'm like, you're right. That's really bad. Like, I didn't want to dis diminish it. I'm not going to diminish sin. Because you know what? If I actually let sin be as utterly simple as it is, it only makes Jesus look that much better. I don't want to diminish it and go like, that's not a big deal. You know, God's not really concerned about it. I go, no, yeah, that was really bad. And God hates that. And you know what? Jesus died for that. And you are forgiven if your faith is in Christ. He paid for your sin, no matter how heinous it is. And he told me, he goes, I can't even believe that. I said, that's because you think you're bigger than God. That's because you are confident that your works are more powerful than Christ's works, which is just pride. That's all it is. Let's stop it's pretending like you, you're going, I'm so bad, I'm so bad, and he would never love me. It's, it's no, I'm so powerful and mighty that my sin trumps the love of God, that my sin trumps the grace of Christ, that what I do is bigger than what Christ did in his life and his death and his resurrection, that somehow I am a bigger Jesus than Jesus is. Instead of his grace is sufficient, and you cannot out his grace. Is that good news to you? Such good news. And not just that we've been saved, but we are being saved. It's a present, active reality. We are being saved from the power of sin. It's not just, man, I'm so glad I'm forgiven. I'm so glad the shame gets removed. I'm so glad I don't have to fear condemnation and future uh, separation, but I have great hope that I'm loved and I'm accepted and I have a future. It's not only that, but today in this moment, I am being saved. Right now, Paul says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. See, some of you are, you know, you were young and you came forward and, you know, responded to the call of the gospel in your life and you wrote that date in your Bible and every once in a while you go, man, I was saved when I was 10 years old in that church way back, you know, when I was a kid. And, man, that was amazing. I was saved. I'll never forget that day. And, and I just want to tell you, like, you should say that every day. I'm being saved again today. You should get to the end of your day and lay in your bed and go, thank you, God, that you saved me again today. Thank you, God, you're saving me from myself and from my sin and from the power of sin and from Satan and from all of his demonic activity that wants to take me down and destroy me. You are presently saving me on a day-by-day, moment-by-moment basis. Thank you. You are my Savior all the time, not just once. Every moment of every day, you are my Savior. I am being saved. Paul goes on to talk about the resurrection as he talks about the idea that the the gospel is the good news. I don't have it in my slide, but I want to read it for you. For I want to remind you of this gospel, brothers, that I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, just in case someone says, I don't think that's true, it's all made up. No, there's over 500 that you could talk to right now while Paul is writing this, though some have fallen asleep. And what he's saying there is he's saying, this, this is good news, not that they just died. And I don't know if some of you have heard someone preach the gospel and they've only heard Jesus died for the cross and your sins, died on the cross for your sins, and that's where they ended. And I'm just telling you, if that's all he did, we're in trouble. In fact, Paul goes on to say, because there's this, there's this thing going on in the Corinthian church where they're going, is there really a bodily resurrection? Do we have a future hope of having a body? Or are we just going to be disembodied spirits floating around in heaven? And, 
And I, I know growing up, I was like, man, I don't really want to go to heaven because it sounds like I'm just going to be sitting on a cloud with a bunch of angels and a harp singing hymns that I don't like on hard pews all my life. And it's like, that's not really what I'm looking forward to. And the Bible is really clear. That's not what it's going to be like. It's going to be you with a new body that's going to live on a new earth in a, in a perfect reality with God amongst us and us without sin forever enjoying his presence and doing all the things he designed your body to do in the perfect way they were meant to be, to, to be working out. And that's beautiful. Like your work today matters because you're going to do work forever for our king without sin. You're just practicing for that moment. Right? This is all dress rehearsal. Okay? And so Paul is saying, but without the resurrection, if you don't believe in it, then we should all, of all people, be pitied. Because he says your, your faith is futile. Because the point isn't that you just are forgiven of your sins. The point is that you get a new body and live in a new earth with heaven amongst us every single moment, enjoying his presence forever, and that there's something about a bodied spirituality that God wants. And, and what is Paul saying to the Corinthian church? He's saying, what you do in your body matters because Christ, what he did in his body mattered, and he rose again with a new body, and you are his church, which means you already have the reality of a new body while you're still dealing with your old broken one. Did you catch that? Don't miss that. The truth of the resurrection, if you are unified with Christ, is you already get the experience of the future reality of the, the world to come in the present broken one that we live in every day. The resurrection means the first fruit of the new creation lives in you so that you, by his resurrection body, might live a new life every single day in your broken, broken down body. Does that make sense? Like right now, I should be really tired. I've been with my team for two days planning out 2018. And you know what? I'm not. Why? Because the resurrection power of Jesus Christ is in me by his spirit, enabled me to do what I can't do all by my own. Right? And I love this. Because it's like, yeah, give me more of you, Jesus. When I was over there and Brad said, open up your hands if you want God to just give you something. I'm like, I know I'm in need. I'm tired. And as I, I just sat there and received, I just felt the Holy Spirit just coming over me and filling me and going, Jeff, I'm going to give you what you need. And I go, I know you always do. See, I'm being saved. The beauty of, the, of the, the cross is that I'm forgiven. The beauty of the resurrection is that I'm given power to live a new life right now. Paul says to the church in Rome, stop living like you're slaves. You're not slaves any longer. He goes on and he says, the very spirit that raised Christ from the dead is in you. You have the power that Jesus had. You know, we downplay the humanity to our own demise. We downplay the humanity of Christ to our own demise. We say, no, Jesus did all those things because he's God. No, Jesus did all those things because he had the Holy Spirit. Yes, he was the God-man, but he walked as a human empowered by the Holy Spirit. And the reason he did all that he did the way he did it was because he had the Holy Spirit of God. He was anointed. He was filled. He was empowered. You have the same spirit if you're his. You got to just get up tomorrow morning and go, good morning, Holy Spirit. As you get out of bed, go, I am the temple of the living God filled with the very presence that filled Christ, that empowered Christ, that enabled Christ to preach with power and authority, that enabled Christ to raise the dead and heal the sick and cast out demons, that ultimately raised him from the dead, that the spirit that hovered over the waters of creation when God spoke and things came into existence, I have that same spirit in me as I get up and I go to work. And I say, Holy Spirit, fill me and empower me, anoint me to preach good news. Fill me to live a life that's so radically different than the world. Christ be in me so that Christ might live through me. And that's, that's what you have. The good news of the gospel is not just that you're forgiven. It's that you have the very presence of God. See, the goal of the gospel is not that you go to heaven. The goal of the gospel is that heaven goes to you. That you get filled with the very presence of God. That was always God's intent was that he would dwell with humanity. The garden was a place where he dwelt amongst them. The tabernacle in the temple was a place where he dwelt amongst them. Jesus was the tabernacle of God. John says, the word became flesh and he tabernacled amongst us. He dwelt amongst us. What was that? He was the dwelling place where God with man could dwell. And then what are we? We are now the temple of the living God. That when we were sprinkled with the blood of Christ by faith, we like that first temple that was filled with the presence of God, get filled with the presence of God through his spirit. That's why he shed his blood. It wasn't just to forgive you. It was to cleanse you to be a dwelling place so you could walk around with the very power of God. Amen? To be able to do the things Jesus did. One of my friends who 
came to faith. I remember he was totally pagan. I mean, he was as bad as they get, right? So, I mean, just in terms of like, you just would never expect this guy's going to come to faith, you know? And I love that. We're all that bad, to be honest. Let's just be honest. We all are that bad. But he just he just didn't seem like he was ever going to come to faith. And he finally did. And and uh, he he told me, he said, so um, now do I, do I need to go preach the gospel like you did? I said, no, you don't have to, but you get to. And I think you'll want to. And he goes, I don't even know what I'd say. And I'm like, it's okay. The Spirit of God will tell you what to say. Just keep asking him to give you words and share what he's done in your life and talk about Jesus. And it'll be amazing. And I remember when he found out he uh, had a tumor in his back. And the doctor said, we're going to have to cut it out. And when we cut it out, likely you'll never walk again. So he was a surfer. He grew up on the Oregon coast, but he wanted to head down to California. So he came down somewhere around here, I guess, and went surfing what he thought would be the last time. It's funny. He, um, he ended up, uh, I guess there were, it must have been further towards uh, Orange County because uh, he said that there was this guy named Rick that was baptizing a bunch of people on the, the ocean. He was a pretty happy, jolly, big guy. And I knew it had to have been Rick Warren. I asked later, I called up Rick and said, did you meet, run into a friend of mine? He goes, yeah, that was a great conversation we had. And uh, Clay came back and from the surfing, told me all about Rick and wanted to get baptized and all that. And he said to me, um, hey, um, the Bible says that Jesus prayed over people and they were healed. Does he still do that today? I said, yeah, don't listen to most Christians. They'll tell you he doesn't, but he does. So like, they're wrong. He still does. And he goes, can we, can you guys pray that God will heal me? I said, sure. And so we had a group of people gather at our house. We do that pretty regularly. And it was our night where we have our family meal and we all gathered together to pray over clay. And I remember it was beautiful. He, he asked his mom who's not a believer to come and watch. By the way, I, I'm one of the things, just a side note, I'm, I'm beginning to believe that the reason why we don't see as much miraculous work these days is because we don't actually need any miraculous work to give credibility to the gospel because we don't actually preach it with people who need it. And like, I, I'm convinced, like you want, you want to see God do miracles, go to hospitals and start praying for the sick and then say, this is why Jesus showed up was so that I would be bringing, bring good news to you people. Like, like my wife does hospice work because I think she knows that when people are dying, they're desperate. Like I, I wonder, I just wonder, maybe I'm wrong. God will tell us someday. But I do wonder if one of the reasons why we don't see more miraculous work is because we don't actually need it. Because he didn't do it so that we as Christians could sit around and just experience the Spirit's power. He did it so that the Spirit's power would break into a non-believing community, and then we could tell them it was Jesus' power. All right, that's why. So I loved it that Clay, I, I felt like the Spirit was like in already teaching him how to be a witness. So it was like, bring your mom who doesn't believe and let her see what happens. <laughs> Which, that's kind of a cool thing. Let's see what God does with that, you know. God doesn't have to heal, but he might. And my young daughter, Maggie, I remember, I'll never forget the picture. She had her hand on the middle of his back while we were praying, just believing. You know, God, I, I know you can do this. By the way, she sometimes will pray in Seattle that God will give us a sunny day because we don't get many. And every, she's like, Dad, I just want to have one day without, without rain. God, will you give us tomorrow without rain? The number of times that he stopped the rain, I'm just like, man, you ought to pray every day. People would, but then it'd become like California and everybody moved there. They're already doing that, but uh, we've got to keep the rain a little bit so you guys won't come up north. Uh, but she's there praying, you know, and we're praying, and Clay goes into the hospital the next day, and they open up his back, and the tumor's gone, and he was healed. And we're, we're in the, his hospital room, and he, you know, he's, he's asleep. You know, he's kind of drugged out, and <laughs> the guy next to him has a bandage all over his head, and he's got brain cancer, and he had some surgery, and he says, so who is this guy? points to Clay. He said, well, his, that's Clay. And he said, is he like a pastor or something? I said, what do you mean? He goes, man, that guy's just been telling me about Jesus. And I said, well, what has he been telling you? And I'm thinking, you know, he probably, it was probably a really terrible gospel presentation or something. You know, I was massacred. And uh, honestly, I wasn't thinking that. But, you know, I'll be honest, like in my flesh, sometimes I'm like, can God's people really do this? If I'm honest, there are days when I'm like, man, we're all going to mess it up. Right? And then the Spirit of God just gives me one of these reminders in that moment. And the guy goes, no, this is what he told me. And it was like so clear gospel presentation. I was like, that was like good. And Clay wakes up and I go, dude, you like preach the gospel to this guy. And he's like, I don't even remember doing it. I just, and I'm like, well, see, look at that. Maybe we ought to put you out more often. But, <laughs> but he, he, he was experiencing the power of God saving him. See, I, I want you to understand God doesn't want an impotent church. God doesn't want a people who believe the spirit of God was primarily given to the church so we could get a Bible. Right? 
Thank God for the inspiration of the word of God. Thank God for it. But that wasn't the only reason he gave the spirit. He gave the spirit to regenerate you. He gave the spirit to fill you. He gave the spirit to pour out his affection in your heart. Romans 5, 5. He gave the spirit to empower you to preach the good news with power and authority like Jesus did. He gave you the spirit to enable you to preach or to call people to Christ and see their hearts change. He gave you the spirit so you could see healing happen and people raised from the dead. He still does that, by the way. It's happened. We are being saved, and we will be saved. Amen. And that was the evening. That's the conclusion of this part one of this series on speaking the truths of Jesus in life. Uh, We'll continue this again next week. Just want to point you to a few wonderful resources if you're wanting to learn more about how to do this and and how to do this in, in normal and tangible ways. Jeff actually wrote a fantastic book. I think it's some of his best writing. The book is called Gospel Fluency. You can find it anywhere uh, in which you buy books. Uh, it's everywhere. It's actually now even in the Los Angeles Public Library. Uh, so definitely look for that Gospel Fluency by Jeff Vanderstel. Also, we have a, a handbook that we've made so that groups of all shapes and sizes can walk through uh, and practice and learn and grow. It's an eight-week curriculum. You should check that out. It's the Gospel Fluency Handbook, and you can find that on the website at gospelfluency.com. And then if you're just wanting a lot more other videos or insights on this topic, go to saturatetheworld.com, click the search bar, and search for Gospel Fluency, and you will find many things. That concludes this episode. Hope you have a wonderful week. We'll see you soon. Today's podcast was edited by Ben Fort, and our theme music is written and performed by the band Mopac. Saturate's hope is to see one missional community for every 1,000 people in every city as we see the glory of God fill every person, every place, and every church. We participate in this vision by curating resources, training, coaching, consulting, and many more ways. Find out more at saturatetheworld.com.